James chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 13 here in just a moment. Uh, this is the, the end, sort of, of our time in James. We actually have one more Sunday in James. So just to give you a little commercial, uh, although we are out of verses at the end of today, what we're going to do next week, we're going to try something different. We're going to do a big overview of James. Uh, one thing we want to do is not just be able to say, oh, we finished James, but to walk away with, from James with some basic information, basic understanding of James's major themes and their applications to our lives. So we're going to try next week. We're going to do a big overview of the book of James. If it doesn't work out, we'll do something different the next week and try better. But uh, I like our chances, that's for sure. So next week we'll wrap up James, and then after that we're going to start a, uh, a wonderful journey with Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, one bit of information to share with you. I've been meaning to share this since January, and I keep forgetting, uh, so I won't forget today. If you're new to our church, you may not know, or you may know, that we have two budgets. We have our regular budget, and then we have a missions budget. And that missions budget is used to support missionaries who serve around Boston and all over the world. Uh, we support over 30 missionaries with our missions budget. And the way that missions budget is funded is through the gracious, prayerful commitments of our church family. And so every fall, we have a season where we make commitments together uh, to fund that missions budget. So our goal this year was $350,000, and by God's grace and to His glory, uh, we've committed together, or we've exceeded that goal, and our commitments total $362,000, and I praise God for that, and you should too. Uh, I love that the Lord allows us to, to participate in gospel work around the globe in, in this way and in so many other ways. Thank you for being a generous church, uh, for praying and being obedient to the Lord in these matters. Uh, I, I love serving with you. I'm excited about this. So James chapter 5, verse 13 is where we're going to start this morning. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went through a phase. Uh, I, I went through a very distinct cowboy phase. And so, don't laugh. <laughs> I bought a pair of boots, nice pair of boots. I uh, bought a pair of Wrangler jeans. I bought a Western-styled shirt. And uh, on Tuesdays, I wore my cowboy outfit to school. That was it. Uh, Tuesdays were cowboy day. I'd wear the outfit pop in my Garth Brooks cassette tape into my Walkman, and uh, I, I, I was a cowboy, or so I thought. But the problem was that nothing in my life was cowboy except for that one outfit. For example, we had no cows. Uh, we had no farm. Uh, we, we lived in a suburban neighborhood. Uh, I needed a cowboy life coach, in fact, but that just never happened. I was just a part-time cowboy. Uh, I fell woefully short of what it means to be Western or to be cowboy, although I tried. Well, in our study of James, we spent time with a church, right? This is a letter to a specific church, and we spent time with this church that's fallen woefully short of what it is to be a Christ-following church. When you take all the dysfunctional behaviors and attitudes that James addresses in this letter and you put all of that under one roof, well, you, you have a group of people who are playing church but are missing the mark. 
And so little by little throughout this letter, James dissects all the brokenness. And at times it's been pretty intense, hasn't it? James uh, is not one to uh, speak in vagaries. He gets right to the heart of the matter. He calls rottenness what it is. And he points God's people in the direction they should go and the way they should live. And so when we get to the end of James's letter this morning, these last few weeks have been pretty intense, but there's a shift in James's tone. He ends his letter not by telling them another thing they should not do, and I'm sure there were plenty of other things he could have called on, but rather he encourages them to do some of the most basic things that a Christ-following church should do. And what does James say in what we read this morning are those most basic, most fundamental practices of the church that is wholly devoted to Jesus Christ? It's prayer and it's caring for each other. Not some secret formula, not some secret mystical knowledge that only an elite few get. It's these basic, fundamental Nuclear-powered practices of prayer and caring for one another. There's many ways we can evaluate the effectiveness of our church. Many ways that we can measure uh, how we're doing and and what we're doing. The the two most popular, of course, are attendance. That bottom line number is an easy metric, we would think. And another would be money, budget. Budget. What do we give? Those, those two things, noses and nickels, uh, get a lot of attention when it comes to evaluating church life. But James, this morning, gives us two metrics that matter most. Praying and caring for each other. These are surely the standards by which you and I uh, should evaluate ourselves and our church. And so my goal in our passage today, as we finish these verses in James is to set our focus on these central practices for a church that is wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. If we're going to be a church that's wholly devoted to Jesus Christ, what that means then is that we are people who are wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. James is describing practices that you and I are to intentionally engage in individually and corporately. And so to highlight these practices, I just I want to show you three of them in this final passage, three practices of the church that looks like Jesus. So I want you to read with me James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Here's what he says. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins." 
So three practices of the church that looks like Jesus. If you're taking notes, number one practice, according to James, is this, powerful praying. Verses 13 through 16, powerful praying. In verses 13 through 16, really 13 through 18, James has one primary topic in mind, and that's prayer. The word praise shows up in every verse from 13 to 18. It's as if he's trying to communicate with us. He's trying to get us to understand something we should be about and something we should do. And remember what an emphasis James has given to speech as a matter of discipleship? Since chapter 3, it seems almost week after week, something related to speech comes up in what James writes in this letter. He's so serious about the words we use, how we use them. Even uh, uh, last week when we talked about how we endure under affliction or oppression, speech is still a part of that. Don't grumble against each other, against your brother. And so it should come then as no surprise that here at the end of his letter, James again has speech in focus, the kind of speech that goes from worshiper to the one who's worshiped, the speech of prayer. So look at verse 13. Look at what James says. He starts off with a series of questions. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Yeah. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him. And so the question is this, according to James, in what kinds of situations should a follower of Jesus pray? Well, James says, if you're in trouble, or if you're happy, or if you're sick, later on, if you're messed up in sin, well, these are all occasions for engaging with God, all occasions for praying or praising, talking to God. In these categories that he gives us, trouble, happy, sick, sin, these categories are so broad that they cover the entire scope of the human experience. We could sum up James's approach uh, to prayer this way, pray without ceasing, pray always. Whatever's going on, whatever the situation, whatever's happening in your life, whether the need is huge or less huge, pray, pray all the time. And James helps us understand the incredible power of prayer in verses 14, 15, and 16. Now, alert. These verses are thick, and they are full of questions. They raise so many questions for us. So we're going to root down in these verses for a few minutes and try to make sense of them so that we understand what this prayer looks like that James is talking about. So let's start in verse 14. James asks the question, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And don't go to church if you have fever and are contagious. That's in my, I think that's in my footnotes there. So in verse 14, James seems to be describing a situation where a person is seriously ill. Right? The elders have to be called to the person. That, that person that doesn't seem to be physically able to go to the leaders of the church. And he says that the elders are to pray over that person. It may be reading too much into it, but it seems to paint a picture of a person who's bedridden, very sick. And verse 15, after they're prayed for, they'll be raised up. And so again, it's a picture, I think, of a person who is deathly ill, very seriously ill, in bed, needing assistance. And the sick person is instructed to call the elders of the church. 
Who are the elders? If you're new to our church, this might be something new for you. But the New Testament teaches us that the term elder, it's an office in the church. And that word elder is synonymous. It means the same thing as shepherd or pastor. And so in this instance, when a person calls on the elders of the church, they're calling on the the spiritual leaders and the caregivers of their church to come and pray for them. James says that the elders should pray over the sick person and anoint that person with oil in the name of the Lord. Now again, this raises questions. what, What is this practice all about? What's the significance and the meaning of anointing someone with oil? If you made use of the sermon study guide this past week, maybe in your own study or with your growth group, there's this great little section in there, uh, a few sentences that are given to describe possibilities. What are the different options for which the oil might be used? There's different interpretations. And so one group might say, well, obviously it has medicinal purposes. You anoint a person with oil in the first century because it, it helps promote healing. And that that could be true. In this instance, though, it doesn't seem like the best understanding because if the oil has medicinal purposes, anyone could apply that oil, not just the elders. Or it doesn't have latent healing qualities that are only kicked in when the elders do the anointing. If it has medicinal purposes, it just has medicinal purposes. Anyone could do that. You know, another option is to say, well, this, this has pastoral implications. It's an expression of concern for the person. It's meant to stimulate the faith in the sick person. And there could be something there. That, that seems to make a bit of sense. Some would see here a sacramental practice. Uh, that this, especially in the, the Catholic Church, the, the doctrine of extreme unction uh, is informed by this passage. Anointing with oil then has the purpose of removing sin and preparing the soul of the dying person. But again, for, for that doctrine, it, it, it may have a reference here, but it doesn't have a foundation here in James chapter 5. Uh, you've got to find that practice outside of Scripture. So what is the meaning here? It seems then that the meaning of anointing with oil is primarily symbolic. In the Old Testament, the practice of anointing with oil was done over um, royalty or over the the chief priest. And it's a way of setting a person apart for a specific goal or a specific attention from the Lord. When David was anointed with oil, it didn't give him superpowers. It was a way of saying, this is the one the Lord has set aside for this specific purpose. And that's what it seems to mean here in James chapter 5 also. When you call on the elders to come and pray and and, and you're anointed with oil, the meaning is this. We're setting you apart to God's care and attention. The healing is not in the oil. The healing is in the God who loves you and gave his son for you. That's the special focus of the oil. Now, we're free to disagree on that if you want. But to me, that seems like the best understanding of what James is getting at here. It doesn't seem very James to move the healing power away from God and to put it in an instrument like oil. So then verse 15 makes this bold claim. You call the elders, have them pray for you, anoint you with oil. Verse 15, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So what do we do with that? Let's just skip it and go on. Verse 16. 
No, I'm joking. Oh, no need to skip it. This verse is full of beautiful power. There's different approaches to this. L- let me describe two approaches that I disagree with that exist on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to understanding James 5.15. First, there are some who have said that this verse is not referring to actual physical sickness, but to spiritual illness. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, so there's a sin sickness here. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. And so this individual would say, this is not really about physical illness. This is about spiritual illness. God's going to forgive this person. And if you are physically ill, then certainly the Lord will heal you once and for all when you open your eyes in glory. There's a second approach that is on the opposite end of the spectrum that I I feel is in error. That second approach is there are those who would teach that verse 15 is a promise that every illness will be healed if a person believes properly. This is especially popular in charismatic circles. The belief is that if you have enough faith, then when you pray to the Lord, He'll see the amount of faith you have and He will automatically do the thing that you are faithing in. Now these two views have this one thing in common. They are both rotten for sick people. The first view, if you're sick, it says this really has nothing to do with you except, hey, good news, you'll be healed when you're dead. That's not very hopeful. The other view is just rotten for sick people. That says you're sick because you don't believe enough. You could be healed if you believed properly or in the right amount. That's the stuff of prosperity preachers who have jet fuel to buy and books to sell. It's rotten garbage. So then what should we do with this passage? Let me suggest another way. I think this verse, verse 15, should be read and believed and practiced by those who are sick. And when the sick person or those praying for the sick person are praying, faith is indeed the key factor. But faith is not what the prosperity preachers say it is or what the faith healers say it is. They talk about faith as if it's a substance that you can accumulate and then that accumulation gives you sway over God in His sovereignty. You reach a certain amount of faith and then God is bound to do what you want. That's TV faith. That's not biblical faith. In Scripture, Faith is never about the amount. Even Jesus said, if you've got faith like a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, take a swim, and it's going for it. Faith is not about amount. Faith is about focus. Faith is powerful because of the object of your faith. Faith is not a creative force. Faith does not create our desired outcome. Rather, faith trusts God who has charted our course through the hard day. Faith has focus. Little faith, big faith, doesn't matter when God is the object of that faith. So then the faith that James speaks of is not some secret formula, some superstitious way of thinking that gets God to do what we want. It's the kind of faith that prays, not my will, but your will be done. 
if I pray in faith for God's will to be done in my sickness, then I will never be let down. Do you remember what James told us way back? Chapter 1, verse 6. Our very first Sunday in the book of James. He told us that when we pray, we must not doubt. We must believe. How fascinating that James opens his letter with praying in faith, and he closes his letter with praying in faith. It seems that this is a pivotal practice for all those who walk with Jesus Christ. So the person who is sick should pray, or they should be prayed for with faith in our sovereign God to do what only He can do for the person who is sick. You should pray for healing. That is not at all improper or biblically wrong. You should come to God who is a healer, who is the Lord of life, who can restore in an instant, and your prayer can be and should be, Lord, heal me. Help me in this. And with that, your prayer should be, God, I trust you. If healing is delayed or healing never comes, I trust your good and loving purposes. So these verses don't have to be debilitating in any way for someone who's sick or in any way for for someone who's facing any sort of trial. If you are in trouble, if you are sick, if you are messing with sin, you should come to God and pray. And let the sovereign Lord give you an answer. If God is good and God is loving and God is compassionate, then however he chooses to answer, however he chooses to use our sickness, is going to be the right answer in the right direction. I praise God for men and women of faith who have walked through chronic illness, long sickness, with their hope anchored in Jesus Christ throughout. They never shook a finger at God to blame Him. They didn't use the hardship as an excuse to doubt Him or to discredit Him. But they knew that the God they belong to is sovereign even in sickness. And He will use those things even for His beautiful purposes and for His glory in our lives. Come to James 5.15 in the hope of the Lord who is sovereign and good and loving and healing and put this into practice in your own life. Now James doesn't stop in verse 15. Verse 16, he adds another thing to the mix. He adds confession. Look at verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now this is the only verse in the New Testament where we are explicitly commanded to confess our sins to each other. And so the question might come up, what sins are we to confess? What's the context in which this practice fits? It seems most likely that James is referring to any sin that we identify as a sin that might be leading to sickness. And that's an uncomfortable part of verses 15 and 16. At the end of verse 15, look at what James has said there. He says, if this sick person has sinned, he will be forgiven. The prayer of faith goes up. A person is sick. A person may be sin sick or sick because of sin. 
and the Lord will forgive that person. It's an uncomfortable conversation for us to have or think for us to think about a connection between sin and sickness. And the New Testament shows us different ways of thinking about it. On, On the one hand, well, Jesus, say in John chapter 9, says that very clearly there is not a connection between sin and sickness. So that we can't say, well, my, my sickness is a, is a result of my errors against God. Job also teaches this very same thing. But then again, we do have Jesus in Mark chapter 2 with the paralytic who's lowered through the roof. In that scene, we have Jesus both forgiving and raising the man from his ailment. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we have Paul instructing the Corinthian church to say some of you are sick because of these wicked practices. James also says the same thing as Paul here, that there seems to be in some people a connection between the sins they're engaged in and the sickness they're suffering. But there's an important word here at the end of verse 15 that James uses. It's the word if. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. The if tells us that James doesn't expect this to be the case in every sick person. Not every sickness is the result of sin. But in sickness, you and I should take the opportunity to examine our hearts. Examine our souls. Is it possible that there is a sin in our lives that has led to this thing? It's possible. Now, I'm not the one to diagnose that. My medical license dried up long ago. But you, my friend, as you walk with the Lord and as you pray, you can evaluate. Holy Spirit, show me. Convict me. Lead me in the way of holiness and righteousness. So James then says, verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you'll be healed. What should we confess? It seems we ought to confess if we identify sins that lead to some sort of physical ailment, we ought to confess those sins. And it seems that For sure, we ought to confess in the context of close relationships, trusted relationships. Confess sin just for the purpose of identifying it, outing it, repenting from it, and moving in the direction of holiness. So James, verse 16, does something really interesting. Verse 15, who's he talked about? Verse 15 talks about the sick person and the elders. But then verse 16 he pulls the scope out from elders and sick person to everyone. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Not just the prayer of a righteous elder. The prayer of a righteous man or a righteous woman is powerful and effective. So that tells us that the power of healing prayer doesn't reside solely in some group of leaders, but it's in every follower of Jesus. Powerful praying is not reserved for super-Christians. It's the reality of every praying Christian. So you can be encouraged this morning. So now we've covered a lot of ground in these few verses. I hope you're still with me. You haven't gotten too lost. But what is James's main subject? Even if we've got lost in the weeds here, what's James's main subject in these verses? It's prayer. What's his call to us as readers? Pray. And when should we pray? In whatever situation we find ourselves in. Our conversation with God should be ongoing and constant. It should be a regular part of our daily life. 
And do you know what happens when we pray? Well, the the day of trouble becomes the day of deliverance. The day of rejoicing becomes a day of glorifying God. The day of sickness can be a day of healing. And the day of sin can be a day of forgiveness. All these things that are marks of living in a fallen world in the brokenness of sin, all those things are reversed when we pray in faith, single-minded, not doubting the God who loves us and has rescued us through His Son, Jesus Christ. We so often come to prayer with this sort of defeatist attitude. What do I have to do to get God to hear me and to do what I want? Should I pray on one leg, hop up and down, dress a certain way, kneel a certain way, lay a certain way, say certain words? What do I got to do to get God to hear me? All you got to do is talk. That's it. No secrets here except doing the thing. That's it. You look through the book of Psalms and time and time again, you see God's people praising Him because He simply heard their prayer. He hears that prayer every time. And there's no reason for you to doubt His answer, whether it will be good or in your favor or to your liking. If God the Father sent God the Son, sinless and perfect and holy, 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 to die in your place for your sin, won't He also hear your prayer and answer your prayer? Absolutely. It would make no sense if God, were to, if, if God were to come to us in the person of Jesus, die in our place, suffer the wrath that our sin requires, and then say, I'm not so sure I want to be engaged in this relationship with you. That's not how he works. He's shown his love. He's shown his compassion and mercy through Jesus Christ. So pray. He hears you. He loves you. He answers you. Pray. The church that looks like Jesus Christ prays all the time. There's a second characteristic of the church that looks like Jesus here. Everyone prays. Church prays. Everyone prays. Verses 17 and 18. He gives us some confidence, some encouragement in these two verses. He knows he's talking to a people who lack confidence in their praying. He's already accused some in the church of not praying at all. And when they do pray, they just pray for selfish gain. And so there may be a lack of confidence, and certainly there is in this ancient church and in this modern church. And so he gives us some encouragement. Look at verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So James encourages the church to pray by comparing us to Elijah. Elijah! He's a prophet of God. He once had this big showdown with hundreds of prophets of this false god, Baal. And when Elijah prayed, fire fell from heaven. And an amazing thing happened. Right? Elijah is the one who's, through his prayers, a, a, a widow's son was raised from the dead. So if we were to say in Scripture, who were we like? We might not choose Elijah because his name is so shiny and glittery and his acts are so incredible. What does James say, verse 17? He was a man just like us, right? He, he put his sandals on one foot at a time. 
He's just like me and you. Had a heart, lungs. There was nothing extraordinary about Elijah. He's just a man, just like us. And he prayed. And, and what made Elijah's prayer powerful was not Elijah. This guy had no power in and of himself. The power of Elijah's prayer come from the, came from the fact that he had faith in God. He believed God and obeyed God, and God honored that. If Elijah had not believed, he would have been a total failure, just like all of these prophets of Baal. But that's not what happened. Elijah believed. He prayed in faith. He trusted God. Elijah didn't control the reins. God controlled the reins. So it's not that Elijah shut up the clouds and then opened the clouds on his own. God did this thing when Elijah, the man, the human, when he prayed. Now you might push back on that against James and say, well, you know, sure, maybe Elijah was a human like me, but he wasn't me. I'm a mess. I'm weak. I'm not good at all of this. And that may be an accurate diagnosis. But that's not a problem for God. Elijah was a man with his faults also. He was a man with sin in his life also. And James isn't asking you to control the reins. He isn't telling you the power of drought is in your hands. He's simply encouraging you to pray when you're sick or to pray when you're in trouble or pray especially when you're having a great day just to pray. All you have to do is pray in faith. Trust in the God that you are praying to. You don't need a lot of words. You don't need big words. You need faith, and you need to pray. And then God will do all the heavy lifting. He's going to take care of it. Not you. God will take care of it. It's hard for us to imagine that God would listen. It's hard for us to imagine that God would move in such grand ways. But brother and sister, the prayer of faith is a prayer that God has honored in Elijah and in so many servants in Scripture, and he honors in our lives as well. The church that looks like Jesus is a church that prays powerfully in faith. It's a church where everyone engages in this kind of prayer. It's not reserved for an elite few, the super Christians, the Green Beret Christians. Everyone from the ground up who walks with Jesus prays in this way. One final characteristic of the church that looks like Jesus, we care for each other. Powerful prayer, everyone praying, caring for each other, verses 19 through 20. I mean, this is the stuff that sets churches on fire in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, James's final admonition to us. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. So James describes a situation in which a believer walks away from the faith in active sin. <clears throat> it may be a, a sin that he's described in his letter previously, showing favoritism, not caring for vulnerable people, using words to destroy people. Could be any number of issues going on here. But he describes a person who, in their sin, they walk away from Jesus. They're living in pursuit of sin. And then a fellow believer runs after them in relationship to turn them back to Jesus Christ. This might be a most rare happening in the modern church. 
Because we operate according to this motto, it's none of my business. What if, what if I say something and make them mad? Hey, better loving words than hurt that hurt than, than silence that promotes self-destruction. This is what Christians do for our brother and sister Christians. We encourage each other in our sanctification. And you might say, well, I got sin of my own. Who am I? Look, James is not telling you to be some spiritual police, some church referee ready to call people out at a moment's notice. Ah, you're two miles an hour over the speed limit. I saw that. That's not what he's talking about here. But you have loved ones who walk with Jesus, who go through different seasons of life in their walk with him, just like you do. Peaks and valleys. Times when doubt creeps in, when fear seems to be very prominent. Or just flat out seasons where they chase after their own appetites. It happens, and you know this. And what's the fix? What should the response be from brothers and sisters who see people we love running after sin? Go after them. That's the response. Love them enough to make a phone call. Get coffee and say something to them. I love you, and this is wrong. This is not Christ in you. And it may take one awkward conversation or a dozen awkward conversations or years of conversation, but you pursue that, brother, and you pursue that, sister, towards the goal of drawing them back to Jesus Christ. So James closes this letter with a call to action to you. So I wonder even this morning, is there a name that you've carried on your heart? A brother or sister in the faith that you grieve for because of choices they're making, appetites they're pursuing, or because of hardship they're facing. You are God's provision for them. To walk with them in the hardship, to spur them towards holiness, to yank them in their repentance away from sin and towards Christ, you are the provision for that. And you can do it because Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed to the Lord. And you pray to the Lord. And God honors the prayer of faith. What a unique thing that we would care for each other so much. Doesn't it mean that we've got to have the kinds of relationships with each other where we're tuned in to each other spiritually? Where we engage in conversations? Now this isn't going to be with everyone. You alone won't have this kind of relationship with everyone in the church. But you've got a circle of people that you have this type of intimate relationship with, this closeness with. And those relationships have to be fostered. This is what makes church so powerful, so incredible, not just showing up for an experience and then going home, but engaging in a family-type relationship where we encourage each other in our relationships with Jesus Christ. And we call each other whenever we see one another struggling. Are you the type of person who will make that call? Are you the type of person who would receive that call, knowing that it comes in love with concern for you? God has given us each other for the purpose of loving one another, praying for each other, for spurring one another on to good works. So the church that looks like Jesus, here's what James has given us here at the end of this letter. In short, everyone praying in power and caring for each other. 
That's big. That's really big. It's not a small thing. Especially when you remember what the church is like that James is writing to. They embody the worst of what a church can be. They don't care for vulnerable people. They give prominence to believers who have power in society. They talk horrible about each other. They don't pray. When they do, it's selfish praying. So then it should come as no surprise that when James comes to close his letter, he does so by giving us a glimpse of what's possible in the church that is wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. What's possible is is church leadership that prays for those who are sick, sick or cared for in multiple levels. There's honest confession between believers. Sinners are lovingly corrected towards holiness. Relationships are genuine and positive. In other words, the the church that looks like Jesus does not look like the world. We are an outpost of heaven when we pray in faith and when we love each other towards holiness. We become more like heaven when we live this way among each other. And that's the stuff this world is desperate for. They get phony. They get minding their own business. They get isolation everywhere else. But in the family of faith, We love each other in a different way, in a way marked by the cross of Jesus Christ. So these are the kinds of people we are to be. People who pray and people who love each other. A number of years ago, I was assigned to meet with a church planter who had just moved into our area. And he and I were supposed to meet once a month. And I was was to be a cheerleader and, and a support for this guy just encourage him in any way that I could, help him wrestle with church questions, whatever. And uh, I remember our, our first meeting, I, I asked him, I said, hey, tell me what this new church is going to be like. That's a pretty broad question. So he answered and said, well, this is what our music is going to be like. This is what our instruments will be like. Here's the technology we're going to use. Here's the clothes we're going to wear. And then he told me also his ideas for use of a confetti cannon. And to be fair, we should probably find more uses for confetti cannons in our lives. I'm not anti-confetti cannon, far from it. But if someone were to ask you, what's your church like? You ought to be able to say, from experience, off the top. We are a church that prays for each other. We're serious about walking alongside people who are sick or who are hurting in any way. We're a church where our relationships are so real, so sincere, that we will encourage each other when sin seems to be mounting. We'll love each other towards holiness. And we have a confetti cannon. (laughs) What makes the church powerful, effective, heavenly are the simple, life-changing practices of praying and loving one another. Brothers and sisters, do not merely listen to this word. Do what it says. Pray for each other. Love each other. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for this precious letter. Thank you for the way it challenges us and the way James just speaks so clearly, so simply. Thank you for the gift of prayer. 
Father God, thank you that your ear is turned towards us. And your ear is not turned towards us because we have earned it or because we're extra special Christians. This is just who you are, a God of grace who delights to hear the prayers of your people and you delight to answer them. Thank you for being this kind of God and for this kind of salvation. Lord, let us be people that pray in faith. Not for the purpose of manipulating you, but praying in faith so that our deepest joy would be found in you no matter what. That we would persevere, that we would endure all the way through the hard day. And that God, in some instances, we would experience the grace of healing or deliverance. And Lord, in other cases, we would enjoy the grace of a long hardship that shapes our souls over time and gives witness to your goodness and your mercy. Father, I pray for brothers and sisters who are dealing with all kinds of illness, especially chronic illness, pain, ongoing struggles. I ask, Father, that their hope would be filled today as they once again turn to you in prayer and trust you, the God who is loving and compassionate. And Lord, help us to be the kinds of people who have the kinds of relationships that are so sincere, so genuine, that will risk the hard conversations for the sake of each other's holiness. Help us to cover a multitude of sins in our lives by walking with each other towards the cross. Thank you for this salvation that is through faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And we praise you, the God who hears our prayers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.